And this woman comes in and says, oh, this is perfect. I love it. She says, how much is it? And I go, 15. And she goes, oh, that's great. And then I said, 100. And she stopped and turned around and walked out. And if I said 15,000, she would guarantee she would have bought it. Do you ever feel like you're lost on social media? Like you're just another face in the crowd? Well, what if I told you that there was a platform just for the woodworking industry? It's called WoodNexus. Think of it as the LinkedIn for furniture company owners, or the Facebook for lumber suppliers, or the Instagram for woodworking tools. You get the idea. I'm actually on WoodNexus right now with this show sharing episode information and answering questions about the topics I discuss with each guest. So if you're looking to connect with more people in the industry or looking for new suppliers or just interested in seeing what's out there, check out woodnexus.org. And while you're there, stop by the Building a Furniture Brand page and say, hey, I'll see you there. Let's talk quality, family business, and American-made tools. Bits and Bits offers all three, and more. They make all types of bits. CNC bits, router bits, engraving cutters, even custom bits if you need. The list goes on. Everything you want for your shop, you can get at BitsBits.com. It's their name, but it's also what they do. They are first and foremost a manufacturer. They actually make their own products in their own Pacific Northwest American factory. And for over 30 years, They've been a family business, so if you want to talk about a company that stands behind their product, you're talking about Bits and Bits. They are also a full Festool and Whiteside distributor, but what really stands them apart in my mind, besides manufacturing their own product, is their exclusive Astra coating. They put it on everything they make, and it extends the life of a bit no matter if you're using it in wood, metal, or plastic. Want to know more? Just check out BitsBits.com. That's B-I-T-S-B-I-T-S dot com. Check them out for all your Bits needs. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Scott Grove, owner of the furniture company Green Grove Design and many others. For 45 years, Scott has been building. The countless furniture pieces, sculptures, books written, courses taught have all given him a view on the industry that few can claim. He has worked with world-renowned designers, giant companies, museums and galleries, and along the way has made his own road and his own name in the industry. Looking back to where he came from and looking forward to where he's going, Scott shares his thoughts on what he has seen during his storied career. So follow along as we talk about good and bad growth, being a boss, where a design language comes from, and much more. So let's start the episode and hear about Scott's story in his own words. Basically, I've been an artist uh, all my life. I'm a third generation artist. It's been in my family, both sides of my uh, mother and father had artists and engineers. That's really a background. So it's all I've ever known. I actually became a professional artist at the age of 16, where I was making sculptures in, on the Hudson River, which is where I grew up, just north of New York City, and selling them at a uh, local gallery. Then, So I've always known I wanted to do the arts. In high school, I wanted to be either a draftsman 
which I actually won a county-wide award and became a draftsman at the age of 17, working after school, and also was interested in photography. This is before digital photography and got a job as a developer and spent too much time in a dark room and realized that's not what I want to do. So I uh, realized that more of the graphic or production or product arts was really the direction I wanted to be in. So I went to RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology. They had a very broad program. I went for environmental design. So I have a design degree and that unique title really covered everything from interior design to product design, graphic design, really broad spectrum. I uh, also had the School for American Crafts. So I took some classes there at RIT. Uh, I met a, a partner who uh, actually lived in the same county that I did. And we started building decks in summertime. And that actually went really, really well because we were building decks. This is right when pressure-driven lumber came out. And we were building decks like cabinetry, you know, mitering our joints and, and pretty much what everybody's doing now. But nobody was doing what we were doing at the time. We were actually did a little writing for Fine Home Building magazine and was asked to write a book and shoot a video and all that. So that, that one was doing really, really well. And then once we graduated, we just sort of continued with it. I, I never had to go find a job, although I worked, as I said, as a developer and a graphic designer at Bausch and Lam on uh, after school, things like that. But building decks was great, worked real hard, and, and uh, our parents were our best marketing people. We were just working for our parents' friends, and we were bouncing back and forth between Rochester and Westchester County, which is about an hour north of New York City. But then winter would come and we we're like, well, what do we do now? I mean, I've built in plenty of decks in the middle of winter, but we then started doing kitchens. That was sort of our journey into woodworking. You were building decks and then went into kitchens and both of those avenues are fully respectable careers. I know a lot of people who make a great living doing both of those. Yeah. But if you look at your work now, it's so different than that type of building. Sure. And although you can still bring artistic touches to decks and to kitchens, for the most part, they both fill mostly functional needs. And if you look at your furniture now, and for the past how many years you've been doing it in this style, it really falls into a functional art category. And you even call it that yourself. You call it functional art. So how did you make that design decision to move from one extreme of the industry to the other? Sure. Uh, I'm going to step back and just briefly talk about the functional art and when I realized that. Because at the time, yeah, I'm building kitchens and, and decks and whatever during the day. In the evening, I'm doing sculpture. Now, the sculpture I was doing was not large sculpture, outdoor public art, which I now do. And it wasn't tabletop. It was sort of just say two to three feet size sculpture. And that's a real hard sell. So, And I didn't have a clue that, you know... People don't buy sculpture for their house. Maybe they would buy it for outside, but that's even less of a chance. Uh, people buy paintings and photographs to hang on their wall. They have more wall space. And then one day, literally, I took one of my steel sculptures and I put a piece of glass on it. And I was like, oh my God, I just invented sliced bread. I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait, functional art. This is great. Now people have a reason to display art in the middle of their living room. They, it's a coffee table. What, what a no-brainer. What a no and of course, I literally thought I invented it. <laughs> Needs to say, I had no clue who Wendell Castle was at the time. 20 years later, I ended up running a studio. <laughs> that was a good realization. Now, I'm going to jump right into the meat of this, right into pricing, and specifically pricing for functional art furniture. 
As if pricing for furniture isn't hard enough, now you throw into it the intangible quality of art and everything goes out the window. <laughs> but with you having been in this industry for 45 plus years, I'm assuming you've picked up some thoughts on this along the way that you could share. Sure. And I just want to make a point that now you have a big reputation and a name that sells your work for you. So let's take it back a while to when you first started out and how you thought of pricing functional art at the beginning of your career. As far as pricing, well, there was, uh, you know, I was all over the place. This is before I was showing in galleries uh, across the country. But in the beginning, it was either whatever you can get for it, right? You know, my, it's filling up my, my apartment. I got no room for it. So dump it. Just get rid of it. Get it, get it out there. Because usually if you, if you get it out there, then someone else would see it in someone's house and say, hey, that's cool. Where'd you get that, you know, cool, cool art table? And, you know, then my name starts spreading because the best marketing is word of mouth. That's really the, the best marketing out there. You probably know that. Um, then when I started transitioning into making this sort of my living or day job, if you will, okay, at first I was just crunching the numbers. And, and most business people don't really understand that process. You know, what's overhead? What's your, besides what your time is worth, we'll get to that later, but what's rent, what's insurance? Um, also a big factor is utilization rate, which means, oh, I, I can make this in eight hours. Well, that means it's going to take you one day. Probably not because you're not going to be able to work. Well, who works eight hours? But let's just use that as a, as a foundation. In an eight hour day, you're probably spending an hour, two hours, three hours, monkeying around, answering the phone, sweeping the floor, doing everything else except, you know, billable hours. So that utilization rate has to do with non-billable hours. They need to factor that in. That was something I learned the hard way. Nothing's ever learned by doing it right. So I hope I can share that. So you got to figure out, you know, how many hours you can work a day and incorporate those additional hours for overhead. And once you know your base overhead cost, which is, you not working. So it cost me, you know, 300 bucks a day, even if, I, if I'm not selling anything, just to keep the doors open and the heat on, electricity and all that. Then you add in, okay, this piece will cost, take me 10, 20, 40 hours, 100 hours, whatever it is. And I need to make so much an hour. And I just sort of started that. And of course, you got to add a little extra for, for overhead and profit and the, the, the projects you screw up and you got to make twice or three times. Um, but once you sort of get all those multipliers in there, that was sort of the baseline. Like, I got to sell this because one thing I said to myself is I, I'm never going to lose money. I mean, intentionally. We've all had those jobs that go terribly wrong. But I, I always said when I had employees that I'm never not going to pay myself because I know a lot of people who would have employees and have a rough span. So they want to keep their employees. So, okay, I'm not going to pay myself. I'll just pay my employees. I said, I'm never going to do that. I'm always going to pay myself just a living wage, whatever that whatever that was at the time. From there, then you can start raising your prices, if you will. You can start testing the market. I do have an interesting story because um, sometimes if you price things too low, there's a perceived value. A lot of times students right out of school, I mean, I one year I hired the entire graduating class at, at the School for American Crafts. And, you know, these students, idealistic as they are, come out, oh, I want to handcuff dovetails and I want to charge, make a thousand bucks an hour. I'm like, well, first of all, you're not handcutting dovetails, you know, unless this client wants to pay for handcut dovetails. But usually out of the gate, a lot of people 
charge too much. The The goal is to get your work out there, get your name out there. If you're not selling, it's not going anywhere. Now, with that said, maybe if you're still living at home at, in your mother's basement, you know, maybe you, you, you roll a dice and you put a couple of pieces out there at a big scary number. You know, I know a couple of people that's happened to, but you know, it's a big gamble. And at the time I was not living in my mother's basement and I was married and had two kids. I couldn't afford not to sell. So I priced my work very reasonably just to get it out there. Then you can start working up the price. And the one uh, interesting story is I did the Philadelphia Museum show. And this is a gig where it's paid to get in. And I, the first night, the big party night, the tickets were $1,000. So it cost the clients 1000 bucks to get through the door for the opportunity to buy from us, right? Big, big shindig. And I had this piece, one of my very first pieces, a big armoire. It was just basically a box with some really nice, sexy veneer on it. And this woman comes in and says, oh, this is perfect. I love it. She says, how much is it? And I just go, 15. And she goes, oh, that's great. And then I said, 100. And she stopped and turned around and walked out. And if I said 15,000, she would guarantee she would have bought it. So in that scenario, when you have all these rich muckety-mucks, maybe you want to add a zero to your price point. You've worked at and for and with a lot of big names in this industry yeah. before you became a big name yourself. And we don't have enough time in this show to go through each of them, each of the places you worked with and for. But I'd like to ask you, if you can, to lump your experiences in those places all together and share your main takeaways from running giant shops and managing the furniture builds of world-renowned designers. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to give you the negatives, you know. Again, people hopefully will learn from our mistakes. Um there was a number of places I've worked or consulted with where um the owner was extremely creative, but got in his own way by uh, either micromanaging or uh, didn't didn't trust his help. I mean, it's one thing I've always tried to do when I would hire help. I again learned this the hard way. You, you, some people will cheap out. So, oh, I want to. I only pay someone five bucks an hour. Well, you're going to get five bucks an hour worth of labor, and that is a really bad way to go. I understand you're trying to save money. But when you have multiple people in the shop, um, that inexperienced person distracts everybody and becomes an unsafe uh, environment. Because now I'm not, I'm trying to focus on what I'm doing. And I got some knucklehead over there who doesn't know how to use a, a table saw or whatever. And there's kickbacks or who knows what and stuff's flying across the room. And now everybody's on edge, watching out for this guy, taking their focus away. So Hiring good help and then also respecting good help. An architectural firm I worked for briefly during recession and the owner just got in the way. He, he just couldn't, couldn't let his very talented team do what they do. Um, so when you start to have employees and you, a bigger organization, um, you got to give some freedom. You can't micromanage everything. For example, at Wendell Castles, I ran his studio and he was great. He, he, he let, he, he would come up with an idea and he would, he would let you run with it. Now, of course, he may have taken credit for it, but that's, you know, that's part of the being an employee. <laughs> so, you know, everybody has a little bit of ego. And if you, if you don't give your employees credit uh, where credit is due, uh, they're not going to be happy. And, and that's just 
a rabbit hole that you're going to go down. So you don't want to micromanage and you want to hire good help and, and trust your help to, to, to run with it. Let's talk about marketing yourself. And you've already said that word of mouth is the best way you found to get your name out there. Yeah. Be it yeah. through family and friends or even through all the organizations that you work with. So what are some notes that you can share on word of mouth marketing that you've seen work in the real world? Sure. And maybe even if you can go into what you've gotten out of being a part of some of these industry organizations that you've been associated with over your career. Sure. I got a couple of tips that come to mind. So when you're first starting out, you're you're local and that's where word of mouth makes a makes a a, a big difference. You're, you're and start with family, family and friends. You start, you know, they start selling for you and then you get pieces in. Got to make sure that the clients have cards and your name is on the on the piece. And that gets local business, maybe starts growing into regional. From there, um, I did join a number of organizations as a furniture society, uh, which was great, although that society did, never really generated any major commissions. A lot of times we would subcontract to each other, so that would generate uh, work. But it's really great because it's the only place you get to meet people of, of your level, higher level, lower level, whatever, but people in kind and you get to talk, talk shop while you're drinking tequila, which is always a good thing. Um, but other organizations that worked out very well for me is uh, Interior Design Society's ASID. You know, every town has these what are called lunch and learns. So as an architect, or especially architects and interdesigners, to maintain their license, they have to get so many CEU credits. They have to get credits. And how they get credits is by attending a trade show or having what's called a lunch and learn. And lunch and learn is free lunch. And they bring in a speaker. And the speaker will talk about roofing or design or, or whatever. They can't sell, but they just have to educate the, the, the interior designers. And I've done a number of those in a variety of organizations. And that has always paid off really, really well because you're getting a qualified audience. And once you get in with an interior designer or architect, that's that was probably the best marketing tool that I've ever done because it's uh, repeat clients. Once you get a good relationship with your designer, hopefully, I mean, some of them can be micromanaging, but once they trust you, you're saving them time. They're just going to go to the client and say, "I want Scott Grove to build you build the dining room table, and he's going to design it. I'll tell him what color themes, and that's it. End of story. He's gonna he's gonna design it all." That worked really, really well, and it's repeat business as opposed, and it's sort of like whole, the best of both worlds. Retail, you always have to find a new client. I mean, hopefully, you get some collectors, which I have, who keep ordering new work. But most of the time, you're always looking for the new, for the new client, the new sale. Galleries, on the other hand, they're re repeat business, but you're getting half the cost, if you will. So, interior designers are the best of both worlds. It's repeat business, and you tip. You don't have to give fifty percent. Sometimes. They'll want 10%. If they're ethical, they should just be charging their client for their time and that you you then either bill through the interdesigner or bill the client directly. Those organizations are probably the best places to, to really cultivate work and, and long-term relationships. You've run and owned large shops, 10, 15, 20 plus person shops, lots of square feet, lots, lots and lots going on. But now, recently... 
you've really downsized and you mostly work independently. Yeah. You're doing that because you want to. You like the idea of getting back to building, but you still take on big jobs and still need help occasionally. So you've really leaned into outsourcing your work, building by yourself, but when you need extra help, sending it out, sending it out of your shop. Can you talk on that experience, the experience of going from a big shop to a one-person shop, and also what you've learned about bringing in independent contractor help? Sure. First of all, yeah, a lot of a lot of people will be obsessed with growth, and that's that can be a really dangerous thing. I mean, I, as you mentioned, I, I grew up to I had twenty one people in my largest with a ten thousand square foot shop, and I was sort of obsessed with it. Oh, we gotta we gotta get bigger. We gotta get. And then I realized all I'm doing is sitting in my office on the keyboard uh, and like, yeah, I'm a fine woodworker, <laughs> and just feeding the machine, making that overhead and payroll nut every week. And that was really, really tough. It did have some advantages, but people say growing pains are really hard. Well, downsizing is even harder. Trying to downsize from a 10,000 square foot shop to a 1,500 square foot shop was was really difficult. Uh, so it's just uh, on the growth sort of thing. So if starting out, I wouldn't be obsessed with, with growing. Obviously, having employees is... Uh, a blessing. It can, you can make money. There's no bones about it, but you need good help. But then there's the relationships and, and management and all that. You got to be a be a boss. And some people aren't cut out for that. Uh, working by myself, and since I've downsized, outsourcing is really the way to go. Because one thing, it's a fixed number, hopefully, meaning you go to a buddy and you say, hey, I want you to make these 24 legs, or I want you to finish this table, or whatever you're outsourcing. And hopefully they'll give you a number and they'll say, okay, it's going to be 50 bucks a leg or whatever it is. And that's a fixed number where if you did it, you know, you don't know, it might be a hundred bucks a leg. Um, so outsourcing at first, I would typically outsource to um, notable uh, manufacturers. Like for example, when I was doing kitchens and I'm not here to promote anybody, but Conestoga, they, they make doors and cabinets and whatnot. It's a big sweaty factory in Pennsylvania, I think. I mean, they're buying thousands and thousands of tens of thousands of board feet of lumber where I'm going to the lumber yard, picking out two boards, coming back. I've just, you know, wasted my time and gas and everything else to pay for the, for the couple of board feet or, or 20 or 30 or hundred board feet. But these, these places can knock out doors to your specifications a lot cheaper than you can. I know a lot of us like to make everything and do everything, but if you get someone who does one very specific thing, they can do it a lot cheaper than you can, and it's a fixed cost. And you just put that in your estimate, and you know you're not going to blow it, if you will. Then I do use friends and previous employees who are reliable. That's the other thing. You got to make sure they're reliable and they can deliver when they say they're going to deliver. That's really important because the worst thing you can do with your reputation is is miss a delivery date or or I've never asked for more money. I mean, that's a, if, if you blow it, you got to suck it up and eat it. Hopefully, you're going to learn your lesson, uh, but you get a reputation as, oh, he's always over a budget. He's always late. That's that's the kiss of death. Um, the one thing that we can really provide over, you can provide good service. That's the key. And getting a, an outsourced company that will give you the, the service and timeline and price, that, that's, that's the key. But it's very, very profitable. And you're not dealing with overhead and payroll and and taxes and that whole nightmare on that side of things. 
You've shared a lot of advice so far, and I know you have a lot of experiences to draw from. But if you could look back on your career and really distill down the takeaways that you could share with people, people who are just starting their business and also for people who are already doing this. They have a business, but they want to run their business better. What would those key takeaways be for you? Oh, man, that is a tough question. Be honest, um, straightforward, true to your heart. Don't cave. So don't, you can't be weak, but you can't be a bully, right? I've seen a lot of people really sacrifice. Oh, okay. I'll throw, they want, they want this dining room table and they want me to throw in six chairs. So, okay. I'll throw that in for the same price because I want the job. That's the biggest mistake. You you have to sort of hold your ground. No, it's, this is the price and, and that's it. I mean, a lot of people will cave when they get squeezed. So, you know, understanding the numbers and the business side of it is really important. I, I see a lot of people not know that. I, I, one story comes to mind. I, one of my old employees, I, I, he was at a, 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 a local show, museum show, and I was looking at his prices. He was selling this wonderful little hat crafted. I think there were lights or something. And I could tell, boy, how long they take? Oh, they take us six hours a piece. And then I said, well, how much you selling for? Oh, you know, $35 a piece. And I'm like, wait, what? How much How much an hour are you making on that? Not even including materials. And what's the cost of the booth? And how much time out of the shop are you being here? And have you done the numbers? You're, you're losing money. I mean, right? You should just go home now and I'll save you money. Close up and go home. Because uh, he, he didn't know, he didn't know, he didn't crunch the numbers. He was so passionate. I know I say foul your passion, but he was so passion, passionate and in love with his work and wanted to get out there that he was literally giving it away uh, and with and including $20 in, in, in the sale. So you got to know the numbers. You can't lose money. That's a bottom line. You can't lose money intentionally. Uh, don't don't compromise that. And, and as long as you kind of stick to that, hopefully you, you'll 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 make business. Try to be unique. That's important. And, uh, you know, be be fair and honest. You can't lose money. <laughs> intentionally <laughs> that's a t-shirt <laughs> i think i think that's solid advice and if people take away anything from this episode then it should probably be that there you go but you've also shared a lot of other great advice and i know we just scratched the surface of what you've learned in this industry but i really do want to thank you for sharing what you've learned and Sure. And so thank you. And I wish you continued success in wherever your career takes you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you liked what you heard and you got value out of it, please think about leaving a review and subscribing wherever you listen. To learn more about the series, please visit buildingafurniturebrand.com and feel free to reach out anytime with questions or guest suggestions to hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can find me at The Build with Ethan on Instagram. Hope you enjoyed the show and can't wait to bring you the next one.